0: Okay, boomer. Okay, kid, and okay, folks. Now, combined trust funds of Social Security are expected to run out by 2035, and boomers are understandably worried about
1: this. But economics professor Kevin Sylvester isn't worried. But in some sense, we're just we're just moving numbers around on a on a spreadsheet. We'll interview Professor Sylvester in a few minutes. Turning to
0: health. Yolanda Simon's genes don't look very good.
2: My mom had Alzheimer's and she died from complications of Alzheimer's as did my oldest sister and I have a sister that is presently living with it.
0: Now these genes are concerned with Alzheimer's because Yolanda, who is an Alzheimer's community educator, talks about the disease and her chances of getting it. And now we go to our OK Boomer film credit. me. Screening an obscure but hilarious movie based on waste baskets. This might have been something you uh, saw all back in the nineteen sixties, but I'm screening it again because it's a funny movie, and I think you should watch it again.
3: No opening of drawers or prying into private letters, if you know what I mean. I don't know what you mean. I don't know what the hell you're talking about.
0: The news is next. Okay, boomer news. This from AARP about Medicare beneficiary spending. Medicare beneficiaries spent a medium of $3,100 a year of their own money on health care in 2007, the latest year for which comprehensive health data is available. So, 16 years ago, 10% of beneficiaries, more than 4 million people, spent more than $7,800 a year. And the oldest and poorest beneficiaries spent about one quarter of their incomes on health care. According to AARP, four years ago, half of the 35 million older adults and younger persons with disabilities with traditional Medicare spent at least 16 percent of their income on out-of-pocket health care costs. Overall, for 2019, people with traditional Medicare spent an average of $6,700 on insurance premiums and medical services. AARP's Claire Noel Miller says, contrary to a common belief, Medicare does not cover all health care-related expenses, and the costs add up. And what is causing Medicare beneficiaries to dig deep into their bank accounts, hmm? It's because there is no cap on the amount someone might pay in yearly outlays for expenses not covered by Medicare. And of course, AARP is lobbying to change this. Now, the statistics come from a recent analysis by the AARP Public Policy Institute. Let's go to hospital charges. I remember going to a hospital in Nashville, Tennessee about eight years ago and asking what it would cost to be examined by a certain doctor. The spokesperson at the reception desk told me that the hospital did not tell patients what they would be charged before the exam. So it was going to be a surprise. (laughs) And it was. But now, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, has rules in place requiring each hospital in the US to make its standard charges public. The Hospital Price Transparency Regulation also enforces these rules. The regulation defines several types of standard charges, including a list of all individual items and services for which the hospital has established a charge, discounted cash prices for an individual who pays cash or the equivalent for a hospital item and service, and charges negotiated between the hospital and third-party payers. As of April 2023, CMS has issued more than 730 warning notices and 269 requests for corrective action plans, and has imposed fines on four hospitals for noncompliance, which are posted and made publicly available on the CMS website. And there's a lot more to these rules, which you can find by visiting cms.gov. That's cms.gov. Well, the nonprofit Kaiser Family Foundation reports that many Americans have moved on from the pandemic, but for the millions who are immunocompromised or otherwise more vulnerable to COVID, reliable data remains important in assessing safety. Now, I've known several people who have long COVID, and they unfortunately are very, very sick. Uh, I have long COVID, but I'm not I wasn't very sick. I just have some brain fog and a few other things. Anyway, the federal government's public health emergency that's been in effect since January 2020 expires May 11th. The emergency declaration allowed for sweeping changes in the U.S. health care system, like requiring state and local health departments, hospitals and commercial labs to regularly share data with federal officials. But some shared data requirements will come to an end, and the federal government will also lose access to key metrics, as a skeptical Congress seems unlikely to grant agencies additional powers. And private projects like those from the New York Times and John Hopkins University, which made COVID data understandable and useful for everyday people like me, stopped collecting data in March. Now, public health legal scholars, data experts, former and current federal officials, and patients at high risk of severe COVID outcomes worry the scaling back of data access could make it harder to control COVID. There have been improvements in recent years, such as major investments in public health infrastructure and updated data reporting requirements in some states. But concerns remain that the overall shambolic, shambolic as in a shambles, state of U.S. public health data infrastructure could hobble the response to any future threats. And this might not be COVID, it could be some other disease. Anne Shushat, former principal deputy director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, says we're all less safe when there's not the national amassing of this information in a timely and coherent way. A lack of data in the early days of the pandemic left federal officials like Shushat with an unclear picture of the rapidly spreading coronavirus. And even as the public health emergency opened the door for data sharing, the CDC labored for months to expand its authority. Eventually, more than a year into the pandemic, the CDC gained access to data from private health care, such as hospitals and nursing homes, commercial labs, and state and local health departments. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky says officials have been working to retain its authority over some information, such as vaccination records. Well, there's time out on the field, folks. Our engineer has done it again. Um, yeah, we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to call time out on the field, and uh, I'll be back after this. Oh yes, that's Debbie Davis. Picture this, okay, folks. You picture this. There's coffee dripping all over the place, off of the equipment, off of our broadcast copy, on my lap in the microphone, gurgle, gurgle but we got it all cleaned up let's go back to Go Boomer this next story as I spoke a few minutes ago is about a woman I met at the senior fair in Carbondale a few months ago, she stood at the Alzheimer's Association table and she told me this
2: my mom had Alzheimer's and she died from complications of Alzheimer's as did my oldest sister and I have a sister that is presently living with it
0: And once again, that's Yolanda Simon, an Alzheimer's community educator. Now, I'll be frank. I forget things at times, mainly because I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing. I'm on autopilot when I do the dishes or something and lose something, Uh, lose people's business cards. But sometimes, sometimes, especially with this COVID brain fog, I wonder maybe I'm... No, I couldn't have it. But I haven't any relatives that I know of who have had Alzheimer's. Yolanda, however,
1: unfortunately, she has. Yeah, so that's supposedly now when the Social Security Trust Fund goes broke. But that's a big... If. Yeah, if. Now that that year will be um, adjusted. If the economy...
0: Okay, that was not Yolanda. Uh, That was somebody else, and we'll be hearing from him for a second. I I think what happened is when the coffee spilled all over everything, it shorted a couple of things together. Now let's go to Yolanda.
2: I think right now I'm experiencing the memory that comes slower as you age. I am well over 60, so.
0: I think that's the same way and that I forgot your business card where I put it what I have been reading is that there is an increase of Alzheimer's across the country and it has a lot to do with the baby boomers aging have you detected that
2: no not necessarily because of the babies baby boomers aging but as we age uh, and if you want to say that's baby boomers that is so age is the greatest um, indicator of Alzheimer's however it is not the only one you can be, as I mentioned to you earlier, there's risk factors and deterministic factors. Risk factors being um, you've had blows to the head. You've fallen many times and hit your head. But then there are deterministic factors, where it's very much like mine, where I've had parents, um, sisters, siblings, or close relatives that have had it, and that's, that doesn't mean you're going to get it, but it is more likely that you would than if you didn't.
0: Uh, the way I think, uh, I do forget things. Sometimes I don't get as much sleep as I should. But, of course, I think the natural thing for a person to do would be to resist thinking that they might have Alzheimer's, even though this person might be exhibiting the symptoms. Now, can this be self-diagnosed? Can a person diagnosed that they are in the early stages of Alzheimer's by themselves or do they need somebody to diagnose it for them?
2: One of the things we talked about and today we're in this health fair, there are 10 signs that we use as early indicators and that alone won't be necessarily that you have Alzheimer's. Sometimes the forgetfulness, as you said, not resting well, uh, medications, all of those things may have something to do with the way people are behaving as far as daily lives are can are concerned. However, it is a possibility, especially if you've seen it in your family before, that there are things that you know, now this is way different, is consistently starting to affect your everyday life. Then that's when you need to go to a doctor and be and uh, have tests run so you'll know whether or not you really do have dementia or to weed out other things
0: What I'm seeing here. I had gone to school here from 70 to 74 and I moved here in late 2020 mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot more healthcare organizations here in Carbondale and southern Illinois And my guess is it has to do with the fact that you have one of the largest generations in history the baby boomers Are retiring and getting older? Do you expect that you're going to have a lot more patients, people coming in with um, diagnosis of Alzheimer's in the near future as, uh, as we age?
2: Sometimes I think that's so because we're, if you have older populations, obviously that will be. Heretofore, we called it senility sometimes we were not able to diagnose it as such. And you mentioned something earlier about uh, there are some people who actually have it and never um, never accept that they have it along with those people with whom they live. Um, but as, as I said, age being the greatest predictor of the fact that you may have it, um, you can have a place like the Village in Florida and ninety percent of those people won't get alzheimer's so one thing does not necessarily mean the other
0: now we mentioned when i first met you about people of color they're at a greater risk for alzheimer's how come
2: Well, first of all i want to say women are more likely to have it than, than men women of color uh... hispanic uh... asian women um, women of color uh... brown women we say or one and a half times more likely to have it, black women are twice as likely to have it. And of course there are a number of things that they attribute attribute to that. One of the things they say it has to do with lifestyle, uh, the way you eat, um, higher education, uh, where you live, those all those things um, attribute to that however there's something at Alzheimer's called trial match and they're constantly trying to get people of all persuasions to be a part of the trial match and all of it has, has doesn't have to do with medicine but just being able to get um, questions answered so you can do comparisons and contrast as to people's lifestyles that they're trying to decide just why that is because Really, they don't really know why people of color get it more than.
0: Um, uh, do they suspect that it might be genetic?
2: Well, sometimes it is. I, I said that already. That
0: but what I'm talking about, if people of color have genes that might um, encourage Alzheimer's?
2: Not at this point. They don't see that as such right now. No, they're not saying that at all.
0: Okay, so what they're saying then uh, seems to be diet, exercise, and living conditions?
2: Lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Much of it has to do with lifestyle and um, higher education, believe it or not, Um, and environment. Uh, Many times, environments uh, where you're living, what they call, um, uh, like, I grew up in a place where there was um, smokestacks. Um, Coal was used quite a bit. So does that have to do with it? They don't really know yet. So the environmental conditions in which you live have some impact on the kinds of diseases or whatever it is you get. Have they put all that together yet? No.
0: Okay. Do you have any final thoughts about this?
2: My thing is I think education is key. I think education is important for us to be able to um, combat this as much as we can. It is so important to exercise as we get older, to stay socially engaged, to eat uh, properly, to continue to learn to do new things. The, The pathways of the brain needs to be exercised. Even though you like to watch TV, don't watch TV all day. Um, but if you're going to do your new things, if you decide that it's going to be skateboarding, get a helmet. <laughs> we need to do those things that are safe. Um, eliminate smoking if you smoke. Drink very, very small things. All those things attribute to where we're going. Um, I just think, though, knowledge is power. And if you have questions, you can always go to alz.org has so many resources.
0: Yolanda Simon, community educator for the Alzheimer's Association. Now let's do something that will help you think. Uh, there'll be a question about something and then you think about what the answer is. Now I'll give you one of the answers right now. According to his wife, Marsha, the Smithsonian Institution was named after
4: Bob Smith. Well, well, well. The things you learn if you read. This is Bob Smith along with Marcia, my partner, and this is our trivia segment for OK Boomer.
5: OK, Bob, what percentage of objects in its collection does the Smithsonian, that's named after you, I think, Smithsonian (laughs) Institute exhibit? How much of their exhibit
4: do oh, they— They're probably like most museums that they only show maybe 25% of what they have because no, they keep it all in warehouses yeah, and they keep circulating. Yeah, so I'll say 20% of their collection is on view at any given time.
5: Oh, that's a good guess. But you'd be surprised to know it's less than 1%. Wow. Isn't that something? There are 155 million objects in the Smithsonian Collections, and at any one time, it can only show less than 1%. Oh, my God. And you know how big those buildings are and how many there are. Yes. So, uh, And look. it takes
4: days to go through each one.
5: You think they'll want our off-ramp sign? I don't think so. Oh, okay.
4: But you talked about the Smithsonian Institution? Yes. Okay. Well, what famous American inventors were snubbed by the Smithsonian? Ah. And as a result, the Science Museum of London acquired their invention for display. These were famous Inventors? Uh-huh. The Smithsonian said, no, no, we're not interested. Uh, I don't know. The Wright brothers.
5: Oh, come on.
4: This is a— They didn't
5: take the Wright brothers?
4: Isn't that interesting? Now, most people our age and younger wouldn't know about that because it happened before we were born. But the Smithsonian <laughs> would not acknowledge that the Wrights had built the first man-made, heavier-than-air machine capable of powered flight because they had sponsored another aviator. Uh-huh. So the Wrights, they sent their first airplane to the Science Museum of London, where it remained until the Smithsonian admitted its mistake and offered to house the craft. And that's how they got it back.
5: Such pomposity. It
4: is, Uh, really. And isn't that amazing that they wouldn't do that? They wouldn't say, no, we were wrong. Uh, Give us your plane. (laughs) They finally did that.
5: Well, that is stupid, and it has no foresight to that it's
4: just doesn't say much about the smithsonian uh, management at the time at the does time. it no yeah.
5: well, all right so here's some useless things you should know oh good like how many punctuation marks do you think are in the english language take a guess quick quick how many i've
4: i i do not know i don't know uh 20. 14. oh really well i was close See? Yes. See, i was close how how heavy is the world's largest pastry bob what I, how heavy is the It'd be a cake, right? Or are we talking? It says pastry. Okay, 200 pounds. 660. Geez, I'm just not doing well on this category, and am I? Last one. How
5: many? Geez, thank God. <laughs> these are things you should know. Okay. And lastly, how many beaches are there in Israel?
4: Israel's got a great tourist industry. So I would say there's probably maybe 50. Really? Yeah.
5: No, there are 137 beaches.
4: Wow, that's amazing.
5: Yeah. I that's had... a
4: small strip of land to have. How many? Out? 137. 137 beaches. Jeez. Political. Uh-huh. Political question. Lyndon Johnson, he was a flamboyant campaigner. Yes. Even when he was running for Congress, he had a habit of tossing his big Stetson hat out into the crowds at political rallies, but he always got it back. How?
5: Was there a string on it?
4: Nope, he always paid a little boy a dollar in advance to retrieve it. Really?
5: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's funny. The hat
4: itself was worth $25, and he didn't want to lose it. Well,
5: And besides, cowboy hats uh, mean a lot to uh, Southern people or cowboys or pretend cowboys, whatever, but... Hats are very special
4: to Well, them. they're very personal things. And, you know, it was like a trademark for him to have this big Stetson hat. So uh-huh. I want to get my hat back. So, I want
5: my Stetson.
4: Hired a little boy to always go out there, and he'd probably have to beg some people to give it back to him. Yeah. You know, and they probably thought, oh, he's a cute little boy. You can have the hat.
5: Yeah. Then he goes back
4: to Lyndon and gives it to <laughs> no, him. I'll be darned. Okay, education question now. Okay. Who is the only U.S. president who had a PhD?
5: Okay, let me guess. Let me guess. Was, probably, was he not one of our best presidents?
4: Well, I think it's controversial. He was a- oh, Was it, it a, Woodrow Wilson? Woodrow Wilson, yeah. Woodrow Wilson, who saw America through World War I and oh. had the idea for the League of Nations, oh. which was basically the idea that became the United Nations 30 years later.
5: Okay, Bob, I'm going to finish up with a quote today from Dolly Parton, who is now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes, yes. Okay, and she says, the way I see it, if you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain.
4: <laughs> all right all right well that's it for this week we hope you've enjoyed our uh, little bit of trivia and knowledge uh, and we are dedicated to lifelong learning
5: oh, geez. <laughs> well, what's the matter nothing dear
4: well how long have you lived it's been a long life so far sure well and you've been learning time? all that time Yes. So it's lifelong learning. Okay. You're an example of lifelong learning, Marcia. I'm an
5: exemplar. I like that. Let's move on.
4: That's trivia for OK Boomer from Bob and Marcia Smith. We just want to remind everyone if they'd like to join us on the web, they can come to our site at theofframp.show. Back to Robert P. Rickman and OK Boomer.
0: Yes, Robert P. Rickman is here. In, oh, <laughs> A little drip of coffee on the uh, microphone. We had a coffee emergency and uh, earlier in the program, and uh, but but we've got everything all cleaned up. We've got it all swabbed away, and um, everything's going normal, or as normal as this program can go. So I'm going to stand up, and we're going to walk to the coffee machine. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Some coffee. I just slipped on the car. Uh-oh. Somebody just hand me something. They're just in. Due to your irresponsible behavior with the coffee and shorting out the WDBX transmitter control board and your own computer, your coffee privileges have been suspended for the day. Signed, Jerry, Chief Engineer. Well, Jerry, I'm going to put the memo, file it, and then, and then what we're going to do is we're going to hear from our sponsors if we can keep them.
4: Well, well, well. The things you learn if you read. This is Bob Smith alone.
0: Yeah, well, Bob, uh, (laughs) this program is going down in a ball of flames.
4: Hi, I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. The world is dark enough.
5: So we like to keep it fun and light.
4: Join us for 30 minutes of fact-filled fun every week on the
5: Off-Ramp Trivia Podcast.
4: You'll hear fascinating facts about history, music, discovery, weird animals, and everything in between. Including little-known facts about well-known people. Each week, right here on The, the Off-Ramp. Ramp. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or visit us online at theofframp.show. Are you an aspiring author
0: looking to get your book published? Look no further than Tech Time Publishing Company. At Tech Time, we specialize in bringing the best books to readers everywhere. Our team of experienced editors and designers work closely with authors to bring their stories to life, ensuring every book is of the highest quality. But that's not all. Tech Time also offers a unique service to translate and narrate books and revenue sharing. This means that our talented team of translators and narrators will be compensated with a share of the book sales. So whether you're an author, translator, or narrator, Tech Time is the place to be. Join our community of book lovers and let us help you bring your stories to the world. Visit our website today to learn more. That's techtime.it. TechTime dot IT. And if you're looking for a first class Italian translator, check out Laura Squigna. It's spelled S G U I G N A. Laura Squigna, and you can find her on the Tech Time website under Translators. Well thank you very much, Jerry. Jerry, our chief engineer, uh got his mop out and swabbed up that coffee stain that I slipped on and broke the ming vase and then he he took the mop and he squeegeed it out into my coffee mug i'm not going to drink it even though i need more coffee okay let's go back to action uh we're going to go back in the past in the 70s with a guy who looked like a cartoon character guess who roger ramjet
3: Be a Roger and Jet, he's our man, hero of our nation. For his adventures, just be sure and stay tuned to the station. So come and join us, all you kids, for lots of fun and laughter, as Roger and Jet and his men get all the crooks they're after.
6: From Saturday Night Fever, Night Fever was a number one hit for the Bee Gees. It also ranked number eight on the R&B chart and number 19 on the adult contemporary chart. Robert Stigwood had planned to call his movie Saturday Night when he asked that brothers Gibb to write songs for the movie. They did not like the title because there were already a few songs with Saturday Night in the title, including the Bay City Rollers song from a few years earlier. They wrote Night Fever, which they thought would be the perfect title. The two ideas were combined to come up with the movie title, Saturday Night Fever. It spent eight weeks topping the chart in 1978, and was replaced by another Saturday Night Fever song, If I Can't Have You. From Saturday Night Fever, here's Night Fever, a 1978 hit for the Bee Gees. R. R. Out of the past
0: 1978 Saturday Night Fever, and that's Roger Ramjet in... And- I've been handed another envelope. Shall we open up the envelope? Yeah. Mr. Rickman, due to the coffee spill damaging equipment, we are charging you... No, no, I'm not going to pay that. Okay, boomer. All right, we're back on track, I think. Let's talk now about Social Security and that magic date, 2035. 2035. I'm sure you've all heard about that date. 2035 is important to Boomers because 20% of married couples and 40% of singles receive at least 90% of their income from Social Security benefits. I'm one of them. And as we reported last month, the Social Security Board of Trustees say that the combined trust funds will be depleted by 2035, with 80% of benefits payable at that time. But SIU economist Kevin Sylvester tells OK Boomer... That is probably, and now he's saying probably, he's saying that it's probably not that bad.
1: Yeah, so that's supposedly now when the Social Security Trust Fund goes broke. But that's a big... If. Yeah, if. Now, that, that year will be um, adjusted. Uh, if the economy improves, appro- more tax revenue comes in, that date will be shifted out. The economy tanks, uh, less tax revenue, that 2035 becomes 2033, 2032, and so forth. So, yes, it is a prediction. We will Social Security will still be getting income from, from workers paying taxes. And so, in that sense, even if there was no change to Social Security, beneficiaries would still be receiving some of their Social Security check, what the government would have to do is continue to borrow to make up that difference. And as long as the government can borrow cheaply, uh, Social Security recipients will still get their income as expected. Already, though, Social Security is having to use the treasury bonds it has accumulated over the years. So when Social Security ran a surplus by law, it had to buy U.S. treasury bonds with those. All right, so the trust fund, you don't have money locked away somewhere that has my name or your name on, on any account. Social Security, with their surpluses, bought treasury bonds from the U.S. government. In 2035, Social Security would have exhausted all of its treasury. So they would have sold off all its treasury. But in some sense, we're just, we're just moving numbers around on a, on a spreadsheet Right now, Social Security is having to sell some of those bonds to pay for the expenditures it it uh, it provides to people. And as it sells those bonds to the public, the government then is already becoming more indebted um, to the general public in order to pay the benefit the benefits to Social Security and and also to Medicare. So this 2035 is not a magical year that we go from everything fine to catastrophe the government is having to borrow more already to pay for social security and that will continue in the future the level of borrowing will go up but again we're already on that ladder just at a lower rung maybe the good thing about social security is it is indexed to the consumer price index so they are seeing increases in their in the, in the income that they receive from Social Security. So inflation would would hurt them less than someone who's truly on a fixed income. Now, sometimes those Social Security adjustments are slow to catch up, right? Um, so that can still be a problem. And I don't want to say it's perfect. Um, but, but they um, aren't going to be as hurt uh, by inflation, say, as someone who's in a low-wage job that doesn't see their wage quickly increase. Um, with the baby boomers and, and younger workers, of course, the big concern is, will Social Security still be around? Now, for the baby boomers, yes, but as, but as, as younger people get older and they retire, um, there will probably have to be some substantial changes to these programs to, to make sure they continue to fund recipients at the level that people expect. Politically.
0: The baby boomers at one point were the largest generation, the most influential with the voting. Do you think what might happen is that whoever gets to the near the age of retirement, they will have the political power to change Social Security so they get paid?
1: Yes and no. Uh, Older people vote. Politicians know that. But any solution is... In 15 years, in 20 years, this is the changes we will make. In fact, back in 82, or 80, early 80s anyway, when there was a, a major reform to Social Security, it didn't kick in right away. They gave plenty of time for these changes to occur. So I doubt any one elderly person would see any change to, their, to the Social Security income that they are receiving. So someone who is, let's say, right at 67 they would not be affected by any increase in the retirement age. That would hit younger workers when they retire. Okay. Now, let me switch
0: to um, the great resignation, where a lot of baby boomers resigned and and, uh, said, heck with it, I'm resigning, I'm not going to fool around with this. Mm -hmm. What is happening now?
1: We have, during COVID, we saw a great reduction in the labor force. It has taken a long time for us to come back to where we were before before, um, before COVID hit. And um, different reasons for that. Um, could be baby boomers retiring early. You know, why why stress out the last two or three years? I might as well just start retiring now. Um, but we've seen that with younger workers as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not just all a, a baby boomer um, phenomenon, but it is... Um, it's potentially a concern in the sense that you know with lots of people working that creates more income creates more tax revenue and so forth and and it becomes easier to fund various various programs
0: now i interviewed a, a guy named mark miller he had a has a very popular podcast and he said baby boomers are ready to retire until they're not and i've done some reading about this and and many boomers don't have adequate reserves available to them, so they have to go back to work. Have you seen this?
1: Me personally, not so much. This is not one of my main research areas. Um, You know, I do know that savings rates in the United States, unfortunately, are extremely low. And um, people, not just low income, living paycheck to paycheck, sometimes as a choice. Um, you know, and, and who doesn't? I mean, they want to take their kids to Disney and so forth, and everyone wants to do that. But sometimes they find out that they didn't save as much for retirement. I think my personal belief is that, uh, you know, programs like Social Security, they aren't necessarily intended to give people comfortable retirements. They're designed to keep elderly out of poverty, which was a major problem, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, a 100 years ago. And and we've largely alleviated that problem. Not entirely, um, but it, it is, is far less uh, prevalent than it, w- than it once was. But it still means if you want a comfortable retirement, you need to save along, along the way.
0: I don't intend to retire, but uh, I have Social Security and I'm living totally on it. Now, I have a Roth IRA and I've got retirement savings, but I'm not going to dip into those yet. Uh, But I'm living like a graduate student right now. Mm Kind of old graduate student. Anyway, just one more question. Um, This economy as it is now, what do you see the impact on the boomer or the retired person? And the future, what do you think is going to happen in the future, just based on what we know now? Because I know you you can't
1: read the future. I'm still optimistic in, in many ways in terms of productivity improvements and so forth. I think we've scratched the surface with things like artificial intelligence. Um, and in those types of technologies, they, they destroy millions of jobs, but they create millions of jobs as well. And, and they could be a huge boon for, for businesses and make products cheaper, and, and which, which benefits us all. It, you know in the short term inflation remains a concern especially for people um, lower income don't not seeing the big adjustments but I think in the future um, i think we should see continued increases in living standards um, and uh, and continued prosperity despite all the challenges we do see this is new in the sense that the details differ, but but uh, many of these issues, in a different form, have existed for a long, long time. Um, technology al- always creates millions of jobs and destroys millions of jobs. Uh, you know, w- when I was a kid growing up, I was in the 80s. I could never have told my parents I was w- going to be a web page designer. When I was growing up, that what w- no one knew what that was. It didn't exist, but. It's a very uh, well-paying job today that, that, that millions of people um, derive great benefit from. So there will be lots of jobs in the future that we have no inkling about today. And so I want people to keep that in mind. If I knew what they were going to be, I knew where I, would, I would know where to invest and be rich, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I can't give you specific details. But, but seeing what's happened in the past, that's why I'm, I'm still optimistic.
0: That was Kevin Sylvester, professor of economics and director of the School of Analytics, Finance, and Economics at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. This major university is located in a small town 50 miles north of where the Mississippi rivers and the Ohio River come together. Okay, it's time for some cinema. Okay, Boomer. Well, it's okay because it's my program. Anyway, um... Sometimes you see an old movie and it resonates with you. You know, you're bored and you turn on something that you're not familiar with. Well, this one was made in the 1960s, and it involves some maids, maids and uh, workers who, who clean up offices and everything. Uh, anyway, I recorded this, um, this little critique a few years ago. Next up is an old film made in 1963 called Ladies Who Do. Now now don't get ahead of me it's not what you might think Ladies Who Do is about char women or in our way of saying uh, janitorial people working in London in the big high rises they had in the 60s Now the early 60s were much like the late 50s we didn't have all the long hair and all that until the uh about the late 60s So these char women looked a lot like uh, women did in London back in the 50s or 40s. They wore skirts, they had uh, handkerchiefs uh, around their head, you know, holding up their hair, and they would go through the offices and clean overnight. One fine morning, one of the char women, one of the head honchos of the char command, uh, by the name of Mrs. Cragg, played by Peggy Mount, found a cigar in a waste can. And the cigar was unsmoked, and it looked like a pretty good one. So she carefully wrapped it up in some scrap paper and brought it home to her lodger, Colonel Whitworth, played by Robert Morley. Well, the cigar was quickly forgotten when the colonel took a look at what was written on the scrap paper. And he made a financial transaction and made some money. A few days later... Another scrap of paper came into the colonel's attention, and... Well, of course, these
3: are household names in the city. Property tycoons, investment trusts, washing machines. These are some of the smartest operators there are. But you don't work for them, do you? No. But I know the ladies who do. <laughs> I'm not having nobody telling me where I'm going to live. And the only way to stop them pushing us around is to fight them. What with? Where are we going to get the money? Where everybody else gets it from. We are going to make it. Make it? How? Out of bits of waste paper that we find lying about in the offices what we clean. Oh, I don't think that would be much good, Mrs. Craig. Mum had 200 copies of Ravalli she wanted me to sell them. When I took them to the fish shop, they only gave me a shilling. Do you mind? We're not going to sell this waste paper. We are going to make use of it for information. Information? There is lots of information to be had from waste paper baskets, blotters, writing pads and such like. But we do nothing dishonest, understand? Nothing that isn't strictly legal. What Mrs. Craig means... (laughs) Ow! What Mrs. Craig means is we only make use of material which is in the public domain. Uh, Things that have been thrown away or left lying around for anyone to see. No opening of drawers or prying into private letters, if you know what I mean. I don't know what you mean. I don't know what the earl you're talking about. We just pick up anything, what looks interesting, and hand it over to the Colonel.
4: It'll be my job to examine and evaluate the contents. Oh,
3: dear and acting on the information evaluated we buy stocks and shares and such like. What with? With money, of course. What the hell do you usually buy things with? You can't make money without money. (laughs) What could we raise? We'd be lucky to put up 40 quid between the lot of us.
4: We shall start with a modest
3: capital of 5,000 pounds.
0: Oh. Ah, Those were the good old days, weren't they? Uh, Nowadays, that might be called insider trading. Anyway, what are these ladies so riled up about? Oh, there's a meanie in town. A meanie who wants to buy all of their apartments or flats, completely destroy them to build an office complex. And the meanie is James Ryder. He's played by Harry H. Corbett. Now, Ryder is scheming now because he's borrowed on top of borrowed and top of borrowed, and now he's trying to get these people sell their flats. Here's his bright idea.
3: We can get him in the son in an undertaking and move straight away. It's worth paying him a quid each. I don't like it, Jim. I don't like it. I mean, legally, they're in the right. Oh, God, Blimey. here with go again. Can't you understand? Unless we get moving right away, we're gonna have to borrow money at 50% to pay back a 40% loan. Jim, Jim, you... I can't understand these people round here. They'd be much better off in one of those new towns. Like that one we passed through on the Great North Road the other week. Marvellous.
6: And another
3: thing. I'm surprised at you. A working man. A lick spittle for the capitalist bosses. And look at you. Not an ounce of flesh on you. Probably weeks since you had a square meal. What did you have for your dinner? If you had any dinner. I'm asking you, what did you have for your dinner? I'm trying to tell you. As a matter of fact, I didn't have... No, of course, you didn't. And what about your bosses, eh? Look at them, sitting there, stuffing themselves with goose and caviar. Yeah, well, you go and tell them that the bourgeois and proletarian blood will mingle in the gutters of the Charing Cross Road before they get us out of here. Go on. Oh, tell them. on.
0: Oh, oh, oh. So uh, that's Ladies Who Do. Robert Morley was the one who hit his head on the planter. Uh, Morley uh, was a British actor for quite some time. Then he crossed the pond. He acted in several uh, U.S. movies. One of the more popular ones was Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines back in 1965. And that's Ladies Who Do. Now, folks... We're going to stay in England. We're going to be talking about an airline a few years ago that had some very curious uh, changes. And we're going to have a cup of joe, uh, a cup of coffee. Uh, what happened is Jerry, our chief engineer, took some of the coffee off of the mop and, and uh, twisted the mop. And here's the coffee uh, now that I had spilled.
6: Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's
0: delicious. Cup of Joe with Robert.
6: Cup of tea with Kerry. Well,
5: Ryanair, a no-frills airline based in Ireland, which, Robert, I have flown, has already made headlines for contemplating pay toilets for its flights, has a new idea for a cost-conscious flyer, standing room only flights. Michael O'Leary says he could get a flight down to a few bucks if he makes the plan a reality. If there ever was a crash on an aircraft, God forbid, a seatbelt won't save you. O'Leary commented the problem with aviation is that for 50 years it's been populated by people who think it's this wondrous sexual experience, that it's like James
0: Bond and wonderful and we'll all be flying first class when really it's just a bloody bus with wings. O'Leary explained the cheapo flight plan wouldn't be dangerous. We're not talking about areas of huge turbulence around Europe, he says. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is the captain. Hold on to your strap. We're going to some clear air turbulence. Then we're going to make a hard landing. And that wraps up OK Boomer. I'm Robert Rickman. We cleaned up all the coffee, got all the equipment going again, and I've been given a bill, which I filed. And the ladies who do will be able to find it if they worked in this station. I'd like to thank Kevin Sylvester, Yolanda Simon, Roger Ramjet, Bob and Marshall Smith, and also I'd like to thank Janice Paul.